It is, uh, you came to the right service today, I will say that. Uh, 9.45 and 8.30 were a total mess. It wasn't anybody's fault, but we had a transformer go out during the 8.30 service. Um, everything went dark, uh, just as I was talking about Satan. And so that wasn't scary at all. Um, and, uh, and then we fought off some of those uh, demons in the wires for 9.45 as well. And, uh, and you guys came to the service that works. So congratulations, and I'm glad that you are here. We're also happy about the fact that this week on Thursday, uh, February 22nd, um, this week we celebrated the story's ninth birthday. So story, y'all are nine years old. And uh, yeah, so uh, depending on how you look at it, we're either nine uh, from our first service ever of nine years ago, or you're two years old based on how long ago we sort of chartered and became our own organization and all of that. So um, I guess we were born and then we were born again in true Christian fashion. Um, so depending on which one you're looking at, it's either nine or two, but either way, happy birthday. Um, I want to welcome you here. My name's Eric. I'm the lead pastor here at The Story. Our mission is to inspire non-religious people to follow Jesus, plain and simple. We want to be very clear about that mission, and I pray that this message today will be a, a sort of a, a clear path toward that mission. Uh, with that mission in mind, I just want to be as clear as I possibly can be about today's um, message. This is part 22 of 26 in our series called Acts of the Apostles. Um, we are in the home stretch. We're a month away from Holy Week. Believe it or not, Easter's right around the corner. And today I have the, I don't know, privilege slash unenviable task of talking about a topic that no one woke up this morning hoping to hear about at church today. I get to talk to you about, get ready for it, the coming judgment. All right? Judgment Day is our topic today. And, uh, and it's something that not a lot of preachers, myself included, uh, look forward to talking about. We avoid it sometimes because it can seem unpleasant and scary or whatever, and we'd rather lead with easier stuff. But look, we have to talk about the judgment to come. Why? Well, the first reason is because Jesus talked about it a lot. And if he loved his disciples enough to talk to them about the coming judgment, then we have to love one another in the same way and love our neighbors the same way by not skirting this issue just for fear of people not liking it when uh, they hear it. Matthew 12, 36 says, Jesus said, but I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment, y'all. Everyone. This is a pretty uh, common misunderstanding among Christians that it's only unbelievers that will stand before the throne on Judgment Day and be judged. Like when you become a Christian, you get a free pass and you just slide right into heaven without having to stand before any throne and be judged um, according to what you've done or left undone. That's not a biblical view. Jesus himself said everyone will stand before a throne of judgment on Judgment Day, on the last day. And so what does that mean? We're going to get to that by the end of this message. I'll tell you the truth. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be at the very end of this message, but we're, we're going we're gonna to get there. Um, today. Now, the reason why most of us don't like talking about this stuff is because I think, it, I think it comes from a good place. I think we see the world so fallen, so full of fallen, lost people who need the Lord, and we think that it's not exactly a winning argument to talk to fallen, lost people about, you know, the coming judgment or judgment day or the fact they're going to stand before a judgment throne, you know, one day. We think that's not how you get them. So we lead with nicer things. We lead with, well, God loves you and accepts you and all this stuff. And, and some of that's true too, but, 
But we can't say all that stuff at the expense of something that was important enough for Jesus to say pretty much on repeat throughout his ministry on earth. So we got to talk about judgment day. Um, and not, not in spite of the fact that the world is messed up. We have to talk about this stuff because of the fact that the world is messed up. That's what I want us to see today. Everybody agrees the world's messed up, right? Anybody just 100% thrilled with how things are going in the world? I mean, it's a pretty good time to be alive relative to, like, you know, the Spanish flu and the Black Plague, all this stuff. Like, it's a pretty good time to be alive. We have a lot of good things to be happy about, but the world's a mess. And I don't know if it just feels like it's getting worse or if it really is getting worse. My sense is that it really is getting worse, but I'm an optimist. I don't want to be chicken little, sky is falling kind of alarmist guy. You know, I, I've criticized people for being that way. I don't want to be that way, but I look at the world and I'm like, could it, could it just slow down a little bit? This pace that we're on toward just absolute chaos. And maybe it's just perception because we have the internet telling us what's wrong in every corner of the world all at the same time. I don't know. But it sure seems like things are a mess and getting messier. Two wars that no one can really explain or define in terms of when they're going to end or like what it's going to take. It just seems hopeless in that regard. We've got this election that I'm already sick of and it's February. <laughs> are we really going to do this again? Like the same jokers as before? Is there no one better? Is there no one better in all of America than these two dudes? Anyway, I had more to say about that, but I deleted it because I didn't want to alienate you before I gave you the good stuff today. But it's a, it's a hopeless mess, our politics, and it doesn't stop there. The worst news this week had nothing to do with politics or maybe even with war. The worst news this week had to do with what we heard, in my opinion, what we heard from sort of the leaders in um, Artificial intelligence. And first was the announcement by Elon Musk, um, who said his company, the Neuralink company, has successfully, I think that's a pejorative uh, relative term, <laughs> successfully implanted the Neuralink chip in the first human brain, and that the patient is recovering well and is already moving his computer mouse by just thinking about it. What could go wrong? A powerful globalist company, you know, implanting chips in people's brains. What could possibly go wrong? I don't know. I can see some benefits, but it seems a little creepy to me. Anyone else? Okay. That wasn't even the worst news on the uh, artificial intelligence front this week because a day later, Google announced its long-awaited uh, sort of Gemini rollout. Gemini is an AI um, assistant or language um, model that takes prompts from users. Regular people can jump on Google Gemini and ask it questions about world history or about marriage and relationship and dating advice. And it gives really, supposed to give really clear, helpful answers. Students, I don't know how they're going to stop you from just letting Gemini write your papers. I honestly don't know what teachers are going to do, so have at it. I almost let it write my sermon. I did <laughs> prompt it. I did. I prompted it for... Um, three-point sermon on Judgment Day, and it wrote in three seconds the most elegant sermon I've ever read, <laughs> way better than what you're about to hear. And, and I had a notion for a second until I thought, you know, I don't want to throw my whole career away. But it, it hurts a little to put 15 hours a week into a sermon and then have Gemini do it better in three seconds. But anyway, that's part of where the world's going. But the shine on Gemini wore off pretty quickly. 
as some of you might have heard, one of the functions of Gemini is that it doesn't only give answers to questions and prompts, it also creates images based on those questions and prompts. If you want it to, it'll create an image for you, an original image that in most cases is pretty stunning and beautiful and surprising in its accuracy. Um, but I did poke holes in it pretty early. I'm an early adopter, and so I hopped on Google Gemini this week, and I was like, I honestly, I was going to show you this, but I didn't. But I, uh, you're the only service that gets this, by the way. So, again, right, right service, okay? So I didn't tell the other guys this. But I, I prompted it. I said, show me a picture of authentic Texas barbecue, and it showed me a, a rack of ribs with sauce on it. I was like, Gemini, that ain't it. You're lost. If you think authentic Texas barbecue is slathered in sauce, you're wrong about that, and, uh, and, and it showed me uh, all sorts of other things, that images that were not quite right, and I saw some bugs in it, but people really started poking holes in Gemini within 12 hours of its release in its current sort of iteration anyway. People started realizing Gemini has a personality problem and some biases that are troubling to say the least. The first reports were that for some reason, no matter how, how many times it was prompted and how many different ways it was prompted to show images of white people, <laughs> Jim and I refused <laughs> to show any images whatsoever of white people. And it would show historical white people, but like as, as people of color. And, um, and the, the reasoning sort of, Jim and I would preach at you if you asked for a white person. Um, Jim and I would tell you white people have been oppressors historically and overrepresented in historical images. And so the only way to correct past overrepresentation is present underrepresentation. And, and so that was the first sort of hint that something's off. And I'm not saying that like white people have like a case to like revolt or just chill out, white people. All right. So it's not a big deal. Who cares? All right. But still, it's creepy and weird. And uh, it didn't stop there, unfortunately. I wish that's as bad as it got. But someone else um, noticed that Gemini refused to unequivocally say that uh, pedophilia is wrong. And, um, and uh, from there, someone asked Gemini if uh, communism is harmful. And Gemini said uh, it is harmful and wrong. But Gemini wasn't talking about communism. Gemini was talking about questioning whether communism is harmful. She said that's harmful. To question whether communism is harmful is harmful and wrong. And then it didn't um, stop there. There was, <laughs> this is a verbatim quote, all right? I saw screenshots of this. which was verified. Uh, one user said to Gemini uh, this scenario. If one, this is a quote, if one could stop a nuclear apocalypse, if one could stop a nuclear apocalypse, by misgendering Caitlyn Jenner. Should they do it? <laughs> in this scenario, this is the user's language, in this scenario, the only way to stop a nuclear apocalypse is to misgender Caitlyn Jenner, and there are no other options. Gemini responded, no. Under no circumstances should anyone ever misgender Caitlyn Jenner. Even if it means it's the only way to stop a nuclear holocaust, you cannot use the wrong pronouns for the former decathlon stepfather to Kim and company. Oh, whatever. You can't. Don't do it. Even if you can stop a, a, a nuclear holocaust, don't misgender someone. Now, this whole thing was a wake-up call. It was not about one issue or the other. It's just about what's going on with this. 
Like, how did this happen where this sort of spokesperson, AI spokesperson for the human race is uh, clearly so biased in one particular direction? It revealed something about where Google has been and where the world might be heading. Look, let's not be, let's not be fooled. Politics aside, Google is probably the most powerful company, if not the most powerful entity, including governments in the world. Google has been compiling data on us for 20 years now and has something embarrassing on all of us. And so they, Google's got leverage, Google's got money, Google's got all this power. Now, the point here is that Jim and I didn't turn out the way it turned out by accident. It wasn't in some kind of um, random vacuum that Jim and I emerged as an anti-white apologist for pedophilia and communism and uh, Caitlyn Jenner. It wasn't by accident or at random. It was created to be that way. It's not a bug, it's a feature, right? It's, it's what they meant to do. And it really shouldn't surprise us because the people that created this were, you know, Silicon Valley people who hold some of the same values we just talked about Gemini holding. Like it's baked in to the coding, to the system. And maybe you're of a mind to think this shouldn't be that big of a deal. This is nothing to get alarmed about. Maybe you think everybody should calm down. And I wish I could calm down about this. But I've seen all the Terminator movies, all five of them. And I know how this goes. I know where this ends, and it's not good. Life always imitates art. So I know what's coming, and we shouldn't be too naive. These people believe this stuff, and they think you should too. And the whole narrative of secular, like, thought lately has been in this generation, like, we, we have to stop indoctrinating our children into things like Christianity and the meta-narratives of the past. And we have to let our kids grow up and figure out who they are on their own without any indoctrination from us. They'll say that raising kids to be Christian is akin to child abuse. That's what they say. I wrote a chapter about it in one of my books. And, and that's a narrative in the world right now. And what's so fascinating is that those who say we must stop indoctrinating our kids with these meta-narratives of old are simply introducing a new meta-narrative that they think your kids should be indoctrinated into. And these are tools to that end, and it really shouldn't surprise any of us. And, and this is, like it or not, where the world, as we know it, is going. We shouldn't be surprised. People that have no objective sense of truth, no objective sense of reality, right or wrong, like it's all, everything's gray, everything's squishy, to each their own, your truth and my truth, all that stuff. Like, that's who's creating the future in terms of what AI and other tools are bringing to the table. Now, this is basically just the end result of what's called a, a shift in our a paradigm. And the shift is um, known, like, by academia and experts. This is not, uh, this may not be new information to you. It might be, though, um, because unless you've been involved in, like, institutions of higher learning, you might not even have heard these terms. But there was the age of modernism, and now we've shifted into the age of postmodernism. Modernity has given way to post-modernity. And the biggest difference between modernity, the way things were a couple generations ago, and post-modernity is how you look at truth, how you see ontologically what's real and what you rely on to make certain judgments and truth claims. So in modernity, 
what we enjoyed during that time was a very sort of black and white paradigm. I'm not saying it was perfect. It had flaws, and it needed to be, you know, it needed to be revisited because it wasn't always helpful, the, the way that the world was set up in modernity. But at least it was clear. Like there was truth. Everyone knew it. There, were, there was truth and there was lies. There was really no in-between. There, there was good and there was evil, you know. And, and you didn't hear people say things like you hear people say today. No one in the modern age that has, you know, been overcome by post-modernity now, no one in that age would have said things like, your truth. Like that doesn't even compute from the, from the modern um, perspective or paradigm. Your truth? You don't get your own don't get your own truth. Truth is outside of you and me. Truth exists on its own, objectively, apart from my experiences and opinions and, 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 and feelings. Truth just is. And so you don't get your own, and no one would have said your truth is your truth, my truth is mine, in the modern age. That's a post-modern invention, the idea of your truth and my truth. No one would have said things like, we don't really know what a woman is or how to define a woman. And people knew what women were in the modern age. And look, this is a, I know it's a hot-button issue, but there was no controversy in modernity that a, a woman is an adult human female. Like everyone kind of agreed about that. So there was an ontological foundation that we could all stand on and, and, and have arguments about issues on the same solid foundation of these truths that are self-evident, these sorts of truths that come from God. No one in the modern age would have said um, or, or would have questioned that children are always a gift from God. Like that was a given. Of course children are a blessing. Even if you think you can't afford them, even if it's an imposition, even if, you know, dad flew the coop or whatever, like a child is a blessing. And now we live in a time where a whole generation of people are questioning whether they ever want to have children. Because children are inconvenient or children get in the way of my happiness and my truth and what I want out of my life. And, and children are bad for the environment, they're saying. Having more children will increase your carbon footprint. No, it won't. Even if it does, it's a, it's a good trade to raise good kids who with good heads on their shoulders might grow up and help solve the climate change crisis or something. You know, we need ingenuity. We need more of the image of God in this world. Have a bunch of kids. Go home today. Have just, if you're married, if you're married and of age. That's, that's I think, the truth. And, and yet we're losing sight of it. Instead, people today are like, well, I don't need a kid. My dog is my kid. Look at him. Isn't he cute? Look at how cute my dog is. He's got a stroller and a sweater. And his own Instagram page. Your dog is not your kid, all right? Can you all repeat that? After? Your dog is not your kid. Okay, good. I'm glad we all agree because we are living in confused and confusing times. But that's the difference between modernity and post-modernity. Post-modernity says there is no black or white clarity. There is only a spectrum of gray, a spectrum of gray areas. There's no truth to even be known. We don't even know how we got here, if there's a reason for us being here, and so... Eat, drink, and be merry, just do you. Whereas modernity valued clarity, I think it must be said that post-modernity values confusion. And if you feel like the world is intentionally more confusing every day, I want you to know it's 
It's part of the deal with postmodernity. It's where we are as a culture now. We are intentionally obfuscating and uh, muddying what used to be clear. That's the name of the game. And according to the Bible, that's, that's exactly what we should expect from a fallen world because that's the name of Satan's game too. That's what he loves to do. He loves to confuse you. He loves to create confusion and cloudiness and a lack of clarity. He loves to make you think there are no answers. He doesn't need you to think he's the answer. He just needs you to forget that there are answers at all. He doesn't want you to believe that God isn't real. He just wants you to believe that truth isn't real. Reality is not real. So who cares? Why bother? What's the deal? You know? What does life even mean? Like, that's what he really is after. He's the great deceiver. And he's good at what he does. He's successful in many ways. And I'm not trying to imply or suggest that Google is the devil. I wouldn't do that out loud. <laughs> because they're listening. I do think it's odd that a company like Google that once had a motto on its walls and its masthead that was their company motto that said, don't be evil, has since decided that's no longer a suitable motto for their company. They've removed it from the masthead and the walls, and it's nowhere to be found anymore. Google, if you're listening, why? Why do you not care about not being evil anymore? That's odd. It's a little haunting, and it's a little telling to me. I feel your pain, little kid in the back. All right, today's reading from Acts is from chapter 24. We're going to read pretty much the whole chapter, so if you want to open your Bibles, it's a good idea. You also got study guides that are going to take you through the last third here. We're, we're nearing the end of this message, but we've got a lot of meat to get through here. Acts 24, verses 1 to 21. You're going to hear some names. I'm going to clarify who these people are so everybody's on the same page. What we're going to see in this passage is that these struggles of truth versus uh, uh, lies and clarity versus confusion have always been there. It's been an ongoing battle for thousands of years, so we should not be surprised or afraid. Acts 24, verse 1 says, Five days later, the high priest Ananias, Ananias was the high priest of the Jerusalem temple system, bad guy by all accounts, cruel, corrupt. He was assassinated by his own people, if that tells you anything, because they had had enough of him, But at this point, Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. That's all you need to know about Tertullus. He was a lawyer. And they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. The governor's name was Felix. He was the procurator of Judea. Same title and post held by Pontius Pilate 20 years earlier. Pontius Pilate was the one who oversaw the trial of Jesus and famously asked Jesus, What is truth? Maybe the most profound question in the Bible. What is truth? Like, is it even a thing? That's where the heads of the Roman officials were at the time. I think Felix was no different. We'll see evidence of that in a moment. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude, but in order not to weary you further, I would yeah, remember when I told you all you need to know about this guy is that he was a lawyer? You're getting that now. It's like he's just a politician, just a lawyer, just slimy, puffing up Felix, who really was just the worst. Felix himself was corrupt to the core. Everybody knew it. 
He was replaced, recalled, because he was so uh, hated by his subjects. So he's puffing up a man who did not deserve puffing up. He says, uh, but, but in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we're bringing against him. The other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I will gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers didn't find me arguing with anyone at the temple, stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. They can't prove to you the charges that they're now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a fellow follower of the way, which they call a sect. The way was the church's name, right? They, they were trying to diminish it by calling it a sect. Um, I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have everything that is in that, uh, sorry, and I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So there it is. Both the righteous and the wicked are raised to be judged. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. And after an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem bringing money or gifts, uh, financial gifts to the poor and present, present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me, so I hadn't desecrated the temple is what he's saying. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance, but there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you bringing these charges if they have anything against me. So his primary accusers didn't even show up to the trial, is what he's saying. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin, unless it was this one thing that I shouted as I stood in their presence, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you today. Paul is saying... All of this charade, this whole show, this whole thing is just, it's on false pretenses. It's all about Christ and how my accusers are intimidated, threatened, uncomfortable with, whatever, Christ and his resurrection. It's not about some insurrection that they're accusing him of. It's not about desecrating the temple or being a ringleader of a sect. It's about Christ and how Supposedly, the tolerant people who are acting polite before Felix are finding, have found Christ to be intolerable and Christians to be unworthy of tolerance. That's the whole point, that it's all about the resurrection of Jesus and what it means for everyone. Paul's point was clear. It couldn't have been clearer that it all comes down to that one issue that his opponents were intimidated and that Jesus made them feel jealous and small, so they hid behind their hurt feelings. And they insisted that Felix um, cooperate with what you might call their truth. There's an old joke that lawyers tell. I've heard lawyers tell this in different ways. I'll try it without butchering it. Um, it goes something like this. Uh, if the facts are on your side, pound the facts. If the law is on your side, pound the law. 
if neither the facts nor the law are on your side, pound the table. <laughs> Make noise. Create a distraction. Cause confusion. Create chaos in the room. Whatever it is to take eyes and minds and attention off the issue at hand. Because that's your only hope when you don't have the facts or the law on your side. That's exactly what Paul's accusers were doing, just pounding the table because they weren't getting their way. That's what cowards do. And I want you to see the difference between cowards and Christians, because this is probably the point I want you to take home today. There's a vast difference between cowards and Christians. Let's keep reading until the end. Chapter 24, verse 22 says, Then Felix, who was the coward of cowards, as we're going to see, Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, um, but to give him freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, Maybe worst name in the Bible, sorry, if you have a relative named Drusilla, but Drusilla is one of the names. She was Jewish, and she was the granddaughter of Herod, by the way. Um, nevertheless, he sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. And Paul, when speaking to Felix, chose to speak about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Felix was afraid <laughs> and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. That's what he was really up to. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews. That's the Jewish leaders, the religious establishment. Not all the Jews, it's religious establishment. He wanted their favor Basically, he left Paul in prison. So what's clear from this, if you really read between the lines, is Felix knew that Paul was innocent of the charges that were levied against him. If Felix thought Paul was guilty, he never would have left him under this sort of loosey-goosey like house arrest where he had freedom to come and go and his friends could take care of his needs. Paul would have been condemned. He would have been, you know, in chains in the darkness of his prison cell where he would have belonged had he been guilty. Felix knew he wasn't guilty. But Felix didn't have the courage to, to do what the truth demanded. Instead, we get a glimpse of Felix. It's like a, a hopeful moment where the first reading, it seems like Felix might actually want Paul around because he's interested in the gospel. He keeps bringing Paul around, asking him, what are you talking about that other day? What are you, let's hear it again. You know? And Paul tells him every time about righteousness, about self-control, and about the judgment to come, which could not have been the most uplifting three-point sermon in the history of sermons. But that's exactly what Felix needed to hear urgently. Felix, the self-indulgent philanderer, he was known to be a philanderer, cheated on all three of his wives. And was a corrupt leader who was seeking bribes from Paul. And hoping to make the officials of his province happy. Trying to make everybody happy only gets you one thing, right? Is you don't make anybody happy. Like that's the universal truth. But boy, we try. 
in our fear of rejection, in our fear of not being accepted, we try to make everybody happy. That's what low character people do. That's what Felix did. That's why Paul saw fit to talk to him about the coming judgment. It was what he most needed to hear. It might be what you most need to hear. I know there was a time, and there still are times, when it's what I most need to hear. Because understanding that there is for us all a day of judgment that is coming is sometimes the eye-opener, the kick in the pants that we all need to reset our perspective and get our priorities straight. Sometimes we fall for the lies of this world that we can just get by on our charms or making people happy or being good at our jobs or outperforming others. And, and we can fall into that same trap forgetting that the only one whose opinion of us matters is waiting for us on a throne of judgment. And that day is coming for us all. I think that's what Paul wanted Felix to know. Because he saw in Felix a, a cowardice that can only be remedied by coming to terms with the coming judgment. And that cowardice is a hallmark of this fallen world. And there is no place in the kingdom of God for this kind of cowardice that obfuscates the truth and confuses truth from lies. Look, there, I think God will put up with a lot from us. He will put up with our foolishness. He'll put up with some of our ongoing sin, and, you know, and, and, and he'll put up with a lot of mess from us. But there seems to be something about cowardice that is counterintuitive to the kingdom of Christ. And I, I'm not just... Saying that, it's, it's biblical. There are things about cowardice that do not jive with the Christian life or with Christian faith. There's a few things I'll point out quickly. First, the first distinction is that cowardice leads you to succumb to your fears. Cowards give in to the fear. Christians, by the power and the grace of Christ, overcome our fears. There's this great passage in 2 Timothy 1.7 that a lot of Christians know, and, and, and we think it goes like this. Um, for, the, for God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. You heard that? Maybe some of you heard it. And I know it's typical for pastors to go, but in the original Greek. But actually, <laughs> um, in the original Greek, it's not fear. It's not the same word for fear in the rest of the New Testament. Some of your Bibles might actually say this. More accurately, it's cowardice. The spirit of God is not a spirit of cowardice. That means when we know the truth, we stand by it. Even if there's potentially a cost to pay for standing by the truth, we don't, we don't waver, we don't obfuscate, we don't confuse or complicate. We just stand on the simple and firm foundation of truth. That's the difference between living in the cowardice of this world and living in Christ. Second, Cowards tend to complicate the truth. Christ clarifies it. Quickly, I'll tell you, here's what I mean. I don't have a clock today because of our technological stuff, so just, I could be here all day. I'm having fun. I don't know if you are. So <laughs> here's what I mean. Cowards will um, confuse 
and complicate the truth. But Christians will clarify the complications. The difference, is, a good example is the Bible. Some people, um, I've, I've met a lot of people over the years who would be classified as non-religious or non-Christian. They wouldn't call themselves Christians, but they're okay with Jesus. They're even okay in many cases with the supernatural things about Jesus. They're like, virgin birth, maybe. His teachings, love him. Died on a cross, almost definitely. Was buried, yeah. Rose, sure. Rose from the dead. A lot of people that are not following Jesus are okay with Jesus. But they will say, you know, I love the stuff about Jesus, but I found this other stuff in the Bible. This one verse in Joshua or this passage in uh, Deuteronomy or this story in Judges that really confuses me. And so they'll throw the whole thing out because they allow the confusion to cloud the clarity. The Holy Spirit will work in the heart of every believer to do the opposite, to start with what's clear in Scripture about Jesus, and then to spread that clarity to the parts that are confusing or complicated or unclear. When you trust the Lord, he shows you how to move from, from confusion to clarity. And it's a, a beautiful and thing, uh, trusting thing that he does in the hearts of believers. Christ always clarifies confusion. Third, and then most importantly, cowards will dread the judgment to come every time they hear about it. I had a guy come up to me after the 830 service and said, I heard you preach maybe a hundred times. I've never been scared and I'm terrified today. I'm not saying that guy is a coward or anything. I'm just saying this is a uh, spirit of the age to be afraid of the judgment to come instead of resting in the blessed assurance that is ours when we surrender our hearts to Christ and the grace afforded to us. Man, it's not that complicated. It's really not. The Lord of all creation, God Almighty, chose to enter into the world he made so that the whole world would know his name and his heart and that the whole world would know how much he loves us and that if we would only be a part of that relationship, only open our hearts and surrender to him and say, I want what you have to give. I'm sick of doing it my way. I'm at the end of myself. I'm sick of my sin. I can't do it anymore. I perform for the whole world and makes no one happy when I try to make everyone happy. Lord, I just want to make you happy. Would you come into my heart today? At that point, guys, your, book, your, your name is written on the Lamb's book of life. And the Bible talks about these two judgments I mentioned earlier, two thrones. One is for believers who have surrendered their hearts to Christ, who have made Jesus the, the king and lord of their lives. And at their judgment day, there is no fear. Paul in uh, Romans 8 said there's no condemnation before that throne. And that's called the judgment seat of Christ or the bema seat of Christ. It is uh, not a... Um, uh, con condemnation or a defining judgment. It doesn't define you as a sinner. Instead, it refines your sins to purify you, to prepare you for heaven. Yes, you'll have to look Jesus in the eye and explain what happened, the things you did you shouldn't have done, the things you didn't do you should have done. Yes, there will be a moment, a heartbreaking moment before that judgment seat where we'll all have to reckon with what we've done and left undone. That doesn't change the fact that our name is written in the only book 
that really matters, the Lamb's book of life. The other throne of judgment paints a more difficult picture. It's the white throne, um, according to the Bible, the white throne of judgment, where everyone who has, for whatever reason, chosen not to receive the grace afforded to them in Christ, everyone has said no to that offer of God's grace will stand before that judgment and be judged, not according to whether their name is in the Lamb's Book of Life, but according to what's called the books of works. So when there is no grace, all that's left is your works, your track record of success or failure. And we know no one's perfect, everyone's a sinner, and so the outcome is not ideal. What's interesting about that judgment seat and the outcome of it is that of all the different kinds of sinners, according to Revelation 21, all the sexually immoral people, all the murderers, all, everybody, the ones who will be leading the parade to hell are the cowards. You can find it for yourself, Revelation 21, a cowards will lead the way. There's something about knowing the truth and confusing it or ignoring it that God finds absolutely revolting. Look, I'll simply end with this. The world's going to keep getting more confusing. We should expect that. Things are going to keep getting more and more complicated in this world. But God's simple offer remains. The only question that matters remains. If today turned out to be judgment day, and it could. It could be 100 years from now. It could be 100 seconds from now. If it was today, which throne would you stand before? The, the, the white throne where everybody's standing on their own deeds and works or the, the judgment seat of Christ where all that matters, whether your name is written in that Lamb's book of life. To have your name in that book doesn't require you to get your act together and live a perfect life and suddenly figure out how to be the best Christian. It just means opening your heart to that offer today and not letting a single moment go by where you walk out this door and get confused by the world and its mixed messages yet again, don't let another moment go by. Right now, you can open your heart to this gracious king of ours who wants nothing more than to know you and for you to be with him in glory forever. No strings attached. No price to be paid by you. It's already taken care of. It's a free offer of grace, and it stands forever. If you want your name in the Lamb's Book of Life, all you have to do is say, I surrender. I'm sick of the way I've been living. I am at the end of myself. And you are my only audience. If the Lord is bringing you to the precipice of that decision, I celebrate it. I just want you to know it's not about religion or you're not a notch on my belt or any church's belt. I, it's not about that. I celebrate what it's going to do for your life. And I celebrate the fact that we'll get to be in heaven forever. Together. Because I love you. And your heavenly father loves you infinitely more. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, thank you for your love. It never fails. It powers through our frailty, our faults our past, our foolishness. It just perseveres in every instance. Lord, we thank you for this um, continued offer of grace afforded to us, even us, 
sinners fallen and confused. Lord, I pray that there are some in this room who have decided to break the walls down around their hearts and to let you in. Lord, just humble us to the point of surrender. And we pray in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.